Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Unmasked Podcast. Uh, we've got a special guest today, Dr. Gary Sidley. Uh, Dr. Gary Sidley is from the NHS in the UK, and uh, it's, 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 so I'll kind of let him go into more of his background, but this is uh, very exciting, and, and thanks so much for doing this. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Ian. Pleased to be here. Yeah, so that was kind of my first question is, what is your background? What did you do for the NHS, and uh, what kind of, kind of got you interested in COVID policy? Ooh, right. I'll try and keep that short. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I worked in the NHS for 33 years, um, initially as a psychiatric nurse, but for 24 years as a clinical psychologist working in adult mental health. Um, I did that up until 2013 when I opted for early retirement. Um, following that, I I kind of spent most of my time acting as a mental health campaigner, trying to promote alternatives to the biological kind of model uh, for human distress. So, so trying to get away from that drugs can do everything for mental health problems and look at some of the other factors that contributed. So that kept me busy for a few years campaigning in that regard, up until, of course, around February 2020, when when COVID emerged, um, and since then, the majority of my time has been spent uh, trying to counter uh, the dominant narrative. And that's probably me in a, in a nutshell, I think, as far as my background. <laughs> right. So I, I have read your work and appreciated it, and, and I was curious, early on, you know, what made you skeptical of, of lockdown mask mandates COVID policies, did it take some time? Were you initially kind of supportive of it? Did, you, did it make sense to you? Or was it something that initially you just kind of reacted to negatively or, or saw the kind of initial flaws in the policies? Well, I reacted to it from the get-go, um, February 2020. Um, I even wrote a blog about it in, two, I think it was March or April 2020, called The Tale of uh, Two Tyrannies, where I was comparing what I see as biological psychiatrist tyranny with uh, the COVID tyranny, because I think there were some real parallels. So I, I saw it early, and I've often reflected on why that was. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not claiming to be the most switched on campaigning individual. Um, you know, I don't think I've been on a protest in my life until 2020. So I've probably been quite naive through most of my adulthood. But this one immediately activated me. And looking back, I think there's probably a, one or two factors that led to my uh, being able to recognise what was going on very early. I think, first of all, I think working in the National Health Service, um, I often interface with uh, infection control departments. And uh, I always, I know this is a sweeping generalisation and there are no doubt some really good individuals within those domains, but... Um, for the most part, I found them very blinkered, very unrealistic in their kind of recommendations. You know, they would recommend stuff that just were just totally impractical. So that, so that was one issue from my background that made me a bit more uh, sceptical. The second and probably even more importantly was that my one of my specialities when I worked in mental health was around risk. Um, mainly around risk of suicide, because that's what I did my doctorate in. But, but risk generally and the inadequacies of risk assessment, you know, basically that we, we, we claim to be able to assess risk uh, you know, of, of uh, violence or risk of suicide. But they're not much better than guesswork, really. We can't, you know, we, we really are poor at um, uh, assessing risk. And, and that got me into like the related issue of risk aversion as well. And I've just seen how much damage risk aversion uh, causes in the mental health arena. Um, so I, I, think, I think those factors probably made me rather more alert to um, calling uh, this out from a very early stage. Um, and then of course, I've. You know, I, I have interfaced with drug companies throughout all my career, and I just know how corrupt <laughs> Big Pharma is. Must know they undoubtedly the most corrupt industry in the world. So anything where drug companies start to get involved, which I know was a little bit later on in the proceedings, 
with any with anything that they've got their uh, their uh, toying. I'm always a little bit suspicious of. Right. It's it's interesting because that's exactly the same issue that we've had here in the United States, where I think the infectious disease specialists are are incredibly kind of uh, laser focused on one specific thing and completely ignore any kind of trade-offs or, or other uh, negative impacts to their policies. And, and it's uh, so that's interesting to hear that it's the same over there too. I guess maybe it's just part of the field. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, well, I'm sure these guys are extremely good at um, talking about viruses and looking at how viruses behave and how they are spread. But you need to put that into a context, don't you? And uh, I think a lot of them just don't seem to have any grasp on some of the broader implications of what they recommend. So yeah. um, you know, this mono-focus on this, this one particular thing at the expense of all the other uh, collateral damage. But I'm yeah. Rockets that are converted there, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh- so that's kind of related to my next question for you, which was, you know, you know, I'm in the U.S. Most people I'm sure listening to this are, are based in the U.S. So what has the messaging been like there? What's been the messaging in the U.K. about lockdowns and masks and other policies? And, and what are your thoughts on the mental health impacts of all of this messaging from uh, from the government? Well, the, the, the messaging has been horrendous, Ian. Uh, again, from, from, from the outset. That was another reason that got me suspicious was just the total bombardment with the propaganda. Um, I don't know whether it's, whether it's the same in the US, but um, I know in the UK, um, Ofcom, who's the regulator of broadcasters, said from very early on in 2020 that they didn't want any other mainstream media to uh, broadcast anything that wasn't consistent with the, uh, the dominant narrative around COVID. You know, they're quite explicit about that. And then if you add to that the fact that you know, all the commercial TV stations lost a lot of their revenue for advertising because of the lockdowns, the government then stood in to be their main funder and put you know, plowed billions of pounds into uh, advertising uh, around COVID restrictions. So all the media was set up to be the mouthpiece, really, uh, for, the, for the government and their and their scientists. And as far as the mental health, you know, I think if, if, if someone had the motive to create a, a milieu that was so fertile for the emergence of human distress, this was it really. Um, you know, create widespread fear, create widespread uncertainty and put everybody into isolation. You know, those three, <laughs> those three factors uh, arguably the most potent contributors to, to, to mental ill health. So it was all there, all the, and the messaging we've, just, we've had has just been horrendous. Um, you know, within the so-called nudge unit, it sounds quite an innocuous term, doesn't it? But it's, not, it's far from uh, innocuous. Um, I've been pushing their, uh, their covert psychological interventions at us all. Um, and uh, I've spoken a lot about that and campaigned a lot about that, um, which might be of interest. Uh, would, you, would you like me to go into that now? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I, I know you you were one of the founders of the the Smile Free campaign, um, so I was going to ask you know what what about what's that organization like? What are the goals, and you know what have you achieved, or and what have you hoped to achieve going forward? Yeah, well, that was just a little, that's a relatively recent thing. That, that's, that, that merged, uh, I think, early last, well, maybe about 12 months ago, um, where uh, a, a, three of us came together, um, all with a similar view on, on, on masks, and really started to, to fight against it. Now, we all recognise that the, the, the masking kind of regulations and mandates were the most insidious of all the uh, restrictions and um, so we got together and our primary focus our primary aim was to try and get rid of all mass mandates now as always I'm not, not quite sure how much success we can claim with that we have, we've had some success in, in England and the UK as you know in that uh, your mass mandates have been uh, lifted in fact, we've had some more good news today. I don't know whether you're aware of that, Ian, but Scotland have come out and said they're lifting all their remaining mandates, albeit in a month's time. 
and our uh, wow. and our London Mayor Sadiq Khan, who was keeping mass mandates on the transport system, has also come out today and said he's going to lift that mandate. So, so that's wow. good news. So we're having some success in the UK, um, and it's always hard to know how much the Smile Free campaign has contributed to it. But we like to think we've done a, done our bit. Um, you know, we've managed to get quite a fair bit of publicity, uh, quite a, a few thousand members, um, do a lot of campaigning. Um, you know, my my colleague. Uh, Rob Tyson, you know, sets a, 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 a task every week or two for our membership to, you know, to either write a letter to some local business that's still uh, pushing masks on customers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's been, yeah, it's been a really, you know, it's been a, it's been a really again, enjoyable and uplifting little group to be involved in, um, and strangely, in a way, you know, England. And the UK seems to be leading the way a little bit at the moment, which yeah. was a sentence I never thought I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, actually. Uh, so, you know, in the last couple of days, uh, Boris Johnson's basically announced, you know, we're lifting essentially all domestic COVID restrictions, kind of return to normalcy. Um, mm. do, what do you think the motivations have been behind that? Is it acceptance that the policies haven't worked and have damaging side effects, or is it just political pressure because obviously he's had this, you know, party gate things and all these uh, major issues that have come up. What, what do you think is behind the kind of return to normalcy? Really difficult to say, really difficult to put your finger on what it is. There, are, there has been political pressure, um, not from the opposition parties, not from the Labour Party over here, but from his own backbenchers, uh, so his own conservatives. A, there are some subgroups who've been making a lot of noise about the restrictions. And it's indeed those that Smile Free and other campaigns have been involved in have been trying to encourage and, and work with to get some political uh, uh, leverage. Um, so I think that's played a part. Uh, Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, is does tend to blow one way and the other, depending upon who he's recently spoken with. You know, is <laughs> <laughs> is noise the quite frustrating and still has a lot to answer for and I think that's one of my strong views and I'm quite happy of course that how England in particular uh, has, 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 has lifted a lot of the restrictions uh, well all of them now um, so I'm obviously very pleased with that but I do think fear that unless we get rid of some of the underlying uh, legislation that allows them to use these emergency powers and really extinguish the embers of some of these you know, uh, draconian kind of restrictions uh, and just get people to admit, uh, even, you know, metaphorically speaking, of course, you know, we, I think we need some heads on, on spikes to say you've got it fundamentally wrong. The scientists, the politicians, to lockdown, to mass mandate, to use, try and use COVID-19 passports. You know, we do need people to pay for that and to actually come out and be shown to have got this fundamentally wrong. It's caused a huge amount of uh, damage, collateral damage, and therefore we must never do it again. And I think we're a long way from that yet, Ian. Yeah, absolutely. And that that is a, a message I bring up all the time that if you if you allow them to have the pretense that these measures worked at all, there will always be an excuse to bring them back. Um, and, and that was actually that was a question I had for you as well. And, and, you know, do you have a concern that these policies will return to England at some point? And, you know, is there the, the political capital there to return to closures and restrictions and say if there's another new variant or when winter happens again, if, if the, uh, the numbers go back up, will there be oh, return? Yeah. Most, most definitely. You know, I think I think we've got a lot of work to do yet. We've got a lot of education uh, with regards to the public. I think, and we've got to really get the message out that this, what's happened in 2020, was clearly the most catastrophic political decision in peacetime history. I really think really do need to get that message across. Um, because if we don't, you know, we've, we've got the coronavirus act that's still hanging around here in, in the UK. We've got what we call the Public Health 1984 Act, which they've got some emergency powers through. 
Um, they're still kind of can, can be reactivated you know, without any kind of parliamentary vote. That's the frightening thing, just on the basis of the prime minister or the health secretary just deciding one day to switch those back on gives them carte blanche to do pretty much anything, really. So, um, so yeah, I think that, that is a real fear. Um, so, we've, so we do really need to continue to make the case against masks and the other restrictions to, you know, to, to bring home that they've caused far, far more damage than any benefits. Um, and, and, and like I said, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a vindictive person, but I do think we do need named individuals to really carry the can for, for what they've done to us over the last two years. Otherwise, it will happen again, undoubtedly. Right. I, I, that was that's a question I've I've asked a lot of people. I've had to think about it a lot. Is it you know is it important that they just at this point end the restrictions, or is it more important that they go back and say we got it wrong? And I think from what you've said, you think it's more important that they go back and say we got it wrong. Well, I, I think the end of the restrictions is the is the essential uh, necessary precursor to that, but I don't think it's sufficient. I think I think they now have to basically hold their hand up and say we got this totally wrong, and. Um, one of the most positive uh, things that have happened in England in the last uh, week or so, okay, no, that probably trumps the uh, lifting of the restrictions in some way, is that one of the sage scientists, uh, a guy called Woolhouse, has come, has come out in a book, I don't know whether you've come across that, and, and, and actually said, we did get it catastrophically wrong. You know, we, we, you know, we did mess up. You know, this, we, we, didn't, we didn't assess the risk assess the damages of the restrictions. And, and this was a guy who was quite full-on pro-narrative at one time and quite an influential scientific advisor to the government. So I think we need more of that. You know, sceptic, you know, being a bit cynical, you might think that he's covering his own back, but maybe he is. But, but I, you know, we do need people to hold their hand up and, uh, and uh, acknowledge that they've, they've made this catastrophic mistake with regards to COVID. Yeah, I saw your your uh, reference. I was actually that was a question I had for you. As uh, actually was so it's funny timing. Um, I I saw that you referenced that he he said lockdowns became a form of epidemiological communism. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> which is it's, uh, <laughs> it's a great way to put it. But it, it's like where were you all this time? You know, we a lot of us have been saying this for two years. You know, what is behind this dramatic shift now at this point? And, and and, and so kind of that's one side of it. And the other side of it is, you know, do you think that there will be investigations in the UK about how they used messaging and, and, to, and the mental health impacts and down the road? Will there be investigations into the harm the policies have caused? Well, there, there will definitely be an indep supposedly independence inquiry into the restrictions. I think the government's promised that. Um, it doesn't fill me with huge optimism, that one, because it all depends, of course, on who's doing it and what the terms of reference are. And uh, a lot of the voices within government still tend to be towards this kind of thing. Oh, yes, we need an in, in independence inquiry to find out, you know, why we didn't lock down earlier or why we didn't you know, mm -hmm. save, save more lives by being kind of quicker to impose these restrictions. Uh, and a lot of politicians don't seem to be really kind of uh, entertaining the idea that uh, we should question the restrictions per se and... Uh, what the effects of them actually were. So, so yes, there will be an inquiry of a sort, but, but you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I hope I am, but I'm not too optimistic about, about the direction that's going to go in. Um, as you're probably aware, like specifically I and others have been pushing to get some uh, independent inquiry into the, uh, the nudging, the psychological kind of... Uh, covert psychological interventions that have been widely used uh, in this country and in Europe and in America, no doubt. Um, I and uh, I think it's 47 other psychologists, stroke therapists and a few other health professionals have written to one of the committees, one of the government committees here called the PACAC uh, committee. I won't go into what that stands for, but essentially they, they conduct cross-party uh, independence inquiries. So we're really questioning the, the ethics of using these covert psychological nudges on the citizens of our country. And we think they do raise some huge uh, ethical questions 
you know, using fear, inflation, using shaming, using peer pressure, which of course can easily uh, turn into scapegoating. Now, our government, on the advice of their behavioural scientists, have widely used those interventions throughout the last two years to get us to adhere to the restrictions and more recently to get people to accept the vaccination. So and I think that does raise some really fundamental ethical questions around, you know, should a civilised democratic society be deliberately inflicting emotional distress on its people? You know, that sounds like a China-like <laughs> thing yeah. to be doing to me. And that's, so I think this, this ethics around the methods per se, not to mention the collateral damage of them, of course, um, this, this issues around consent, you know, some of, some, of the, some of the major players in the behavioral science world have said on more than one occasion that if you're going to use nudging on the British people, you need to get the people's consent. You need to be open about it at the outset and say, these, you know, we're thinking of using these kinds of approaches. You know, what do you think? And get some kind of sense of what, what, the, what the general population uh, think about these things. None of that's been done. So I think there is an ethical question around consent. And thirdly, the, the, there's, there's an ethical question around the actual goals of these things. You know, I, I, I can imagine, I could be wrong, but I can imagine if the public were asked, should we use some of these covert nudges to get, uh, to reduce violent crime or to, yeah, to stop young men uh, stabbing each other? <laughs> no, the, the people might well agree. Yeah, okay, towards those goals, perhaps we, should, we can use these. But to, you know, towards the fulfilment of very contentious, uh, uh, unprecedented restrictions, uh, I think that's you know, much more, much more questionable. So yeah, so we've written, and um, we're still pushing that at the moment, trying to get publicity for it. We've written to this government committee, asking for a, a formal uh, review uh, of the use of nudging, not just in the public health sector, incidentally, but across all government departments, because uh, you know it's used, it's it's it's. It's, uh, it's so pervasive, this stuff. It's in every, they're embedded now, these nudges, in every aspect of our, uh, our life and every government department. So we do need a review urgently. Absolutely. That, it, it, Laura Dodsworth wrote a book about this, The State of Fear, in the, about the yeah. UK and, and how they used that kind of messaging to promote fear and compliance with the measures. And so that was, that was something I wanted to ask you as well. Do you think that that's going to fundamentally change the relationship between government and people going forward? It sounds like that's kind of something you think you're thinking about. Yes, I think it, well, it, it can, although a lot of people are just unaware that they've been manipulated. I think that's the, that's, that's the issue. Uh, you know, I know people have talked about, I don't know, the population being hypnotized, but in a way, it's a bit like that, you know, these because we've been bombarded so much, Ian, from, you know, for the last two years. I'm sure, I suspect it's the same in the US. Correct me if I'm wrong, but... No, um, it's the same. <laughs> it's the yeah, same. You know, and you can't get away from it. You know, I've not watched mainstream media now for about 12, 15, well, 12, maybe 15 months now, I think. All the main channels, I just refuse to watch. Uh, because it's just a constant stream of, of propaganda. And it brought it on to me, I think it was sometime in, I think it might be late 2020, early 2021, when I, 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 these things just get on the top of you from time to time, you know, I'm sure we've all been there and it's felt, you know, God, I can't cope with this anymore. Uh, just went out for a drive and uh, out five minutes driving and on a, on a, on an electronic board at the side of the road is you are now entering a high risk area. <laughs> you just could not get away from it. So, um, no, and I'm one of, of those who's, who's, who recognizes, you know, what's going on, I think, and who's, who's been against it from the outset. But if you're already, if you've bought into this to various degrees, you know, I just think people are on automatic pilot, uh, just, just coasting along, being nudged through, kind of very skillful use of uh, fear and shame and peer pressure scapegoating just to just nudge to do to you know, to carry on conforming you know, yeah. kind of mindless conformity that we've seen 
from a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. But that's changing. I don't want to sound too negative because I think we've got quite a number of things to be positive about at the moment compared to uh, maybe 12 months ago. Uh, yeah. But there's still a lot of work to do. And uh, so hopefully through this, you know, if we can get an independence inquiry, I'm sure that would turn up some quite uh, startling findings that most people in, in our countries are not aware of. Yeah, absolutely. That that's one thing that I you know I referenced this in, in my book, which was that early on, you know, Dr. Fauci was sent an email in the end of March saying, uh, you know, we have reviewed all the high quality evidence on masking, and, and none of it suggested it would work. Mm-hmm. And then th- three days later, they recommend masking in the general public, and so that's the kind of thing where you you want to see these inquiries to see what else is out there. What were they actually? What was the de- the data and the evidence showing early on? And and then uh, so you know, I'll, I'll go into the next question, which is kind of related to this. Uh, Early on, and you wrote a, a piece about this recently for the critic. Uh, there was pretty obvious that there was no evidence or, or science to suggest that mask wearing would work. So, no. what's your opinion on why they pushed it so hard? Why did they flip flop? You know, what changed from from early on all that data and evidence? Yeah, again, that's another great question, isn't it? Because I'm sure many of us have been asking that because there was this stark flip flop um, around about March, April, 2020. Uh, when Fauci and all, certainly all the UK big big names, another scientist, Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance over here, you know, in February they're all very much against masking the healthy, and by March, April they're all very much for it, and so you, you know you wonder what happened. It's hard to be definitive, but uh, but as I said in that particular article in the Critic, my best guess, looking at snippets of circumstantial evidence. Is is that it's a it mass was in, were kind of persist introduced and persisted with as a as a compliance device. Um, so you and you say, well, what's your evidence for that? Well, it's snippets, isn't there? You know, I think like you've mentioned this strange, you know, kind of U-turn where everybody just changed their mind very quickly. Well, it's puzzling. Um, there was no real robust evidence there are no randomized controlled trial evidence around may 2020 that or april 2020 that could account for that change in fact i looked back on my database the other day and the only kind of trial where they were around uh, randomized control stuff so robust evidence found the contrary it was a cdc review you've been aware of of influenza masks and influenza uh, 14 studies reviewed and their conclusion was they made no significant difference either for the wearer or for others. <laughs> so that, that was yeah. an emphatic bit of evidence that was around at that time um, uh, of, the, of this process. Um, although in the month after the Lancet did, did uh, publish a, an awful piece of supposedly review, but it was one of those so-called studies that had decided what it wanted to find before it went <laughs> to evidence to support it. Yeah. <laughs> so there was no real-world evidence. There was some circumstantial stuff as well, which I always think is interesting, um, which I, I don't know whether you, you may be aware, probably are from all the research you've done with uh, Deborah Cohen, the BBC Newsnight uh, reporter. Um, I don't, have, you, have you come yeah. across? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, you know, she said her, she's a very respected uh, broadcast journalist over here, and uh, she said that her sources had suggested it was political lobbying that had made the World Health Organization change its, uh, change its recommendation. And when she actually put that directly to the WHO, they didn't uh, reject it. So, you know, yep. sort of things like that. And then you mentioned Laura Dodsworth, excellent book. Laura did the investigative journalism that our mainstream failed to, to, to do. Um, and she interviewed a lot of insiders in all this, including um, one of the, uh, what they call the SBIB subgroup, which essentially is just a, a subgroup of SAGE. SAGE is our main group of scientific advisors for the government and the, the SBIB it's the behavioral scientist group. Uh, and the, she interviewed uh, some members of that group, including a guy called Gavin Morgan, who's an educational psychologist. And he said um, that he was very much against masks from the outset. But some of his colleagues on the group 
were in favour of them because, and I use these words, they promoted a sense of solidarity. Hmm. Not much to do with viral transmission there, then, is there? Really? Yeah. Solidarity. So, you know, so we've taken all these little bits together, and along with, you know, go back to the nudging, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence, Ian, that masks powerfully enforced those three main nudges that they've used to get people to uh, adhere to the restrictions. We know they've promoted fear. You know, it's a crude, visible reminder that danger is all around. Uh, it acts as a safety behaviour, which is what I mean is that if you continue to wear masks, you're never going to find out that the world is safe enough to return to because you'll always attribute your survival to the mask rather than it being safe enough. You know, right. masks keep fear going as well as initiating it. Uh, so masks push that particular nudge. The the, the fear nudge, the, the affect nudge, to use the euphemism of behavioural science. Uh, but it also strongly uh, enhances the other two as well, you know, around ego. So the, the idea that following the restrictions is akin to being a, a virtuous person. So mass then become a, you know, a symbol of virtue. Uh, so we're, you know, and all the rather sickening uh, slogans that we had to endure. I don't know whether these those, these reached uh, the US, Ian, but you know, we had actors saying things like, I wear a face covering to protect my mates. You know, you mm -hmm. know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. I keep my distance to protect you. You know, all this kind of uh, virtue signaling stuff. Yeah. That's great for enforcing that. And of course, for the scapegoating, peer pressure on, you know, to, to harness the strength of that. A normative pressure, as our behavioural science colleagues call it, to you not know, to harness harness that to its full degree. You need a very visible, immediately distinguishable sign that someone is either a rule follower or, or not. And you know, mass is perfect. So I don't mm. think it's any coincidence that masks really have helped to uh, enforce those three major nudges. So taking that all together, I think the most plausible explanation to get back to your question is, yes, I think masks were introduced as a compliance device. Yeah, I, there was a, a, an advertisement in California where they had a, a an elderly woman in a hospital bed. You know, it, look, it looks like an ICU bed. And the text is like, you know, you don't want your grandmother to end up here, wear a mask, essentially. And, and it, that's yeah, that's the kind of messaging. And, and it is uh, it is very damaging and. I don't even think we've begun to scratch the surface of what this is going to do going forward. But yeah, uh, we have the equivalent here, Ian, that, yeah. that particular kind of advert where again, yeah, acutely unwell patient gasping for breath in a in a in an hospital bed, and the the the, the, the voiceover was something along the lines of you know, can you look in look her in the eyes and say that you're doing all you can to stop the spread of coronavirus. Yeah, <laughs> kind of thing, really. Those, these nudges are everywhere, are they? You know, certainly in the U.S. Yeah, so, eventually there's going to need to be several books written about the the change that happened from all of these people, and like you say, even scientific advisors saying masks aren't going to work. To uh, you're going to kill your grandmother if you don't wear one. That's yeah. crazy. Um, so there's an issue with masking that's still very contentious. A lot of states have announced that they're ending ending mask mandates in the U.S., but school masking is still a very contentious policy here. So I wanted to ask you what that's been like in the UK. And, you know, it seems like there's been, at least in my, from the outside, it seems like there's been more of a discussion about trade-offs with school masking for younger age groups there, at least. Yeah, it's a contentious issue over here because there's, there's massive wind in a lot of community areas, uh, even before the mandates were lifted. Um, there have been pockets where they're still, you know, prevalent and still kind of... Uh, um, energetically enforced and, and schools have been one of those areas and the, the education teaching unions uh, have been kind of instrumental in that they've been very active in campaigning for uh, kids to be to be massed in the classroom and in the communal areas um, which I think is appalling you know for, for kids who are essentially bulletproof as far as SARS-CoV-2 is concerned um, who aren't really 
that significant spreaders anyway. The the, the, you know, the spread of, of the virus from from kids to, to adults isn't that uh, common, you know. And 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 then you then throw into the mix the the damaging effects on their emotional, social, uh, and intellectual development. Um, I just think that borders on child abuse, really. I really do, and it, and, and it is a contentious area. And, and you know, we've come a long way in England. Like I said, I don't want to sound too negative about it because I am pleased that we've had some successes with some of the mandates. Well, lot of, all the mandates lifted, and mass mandates lifted in Scotland now, as I said, and in and in London. But we've still got to work on these pockets of. Uh, uh, continued kind of adherence to these destructive policies and schools is still an area in fact our smile free campaign is just about to launch um, uh, another kind of way of achieving that and we're going to call it something along the lines of not in front of the children and Hmm. to parallel some of the anti-tobacco campaigns from years ago i don't know whether you might not be old enough to remember those Ian. yeah <laughs> but, you know maybe not smoking in front of kids because it's damaging you know i think yeah push the idea that wearing masks in front of children uh is damaging too and because i'm convinced that's it great. is you know, it is yeah so it's absolutely not, not just masking the kids that's a problem it's having all the adults masked around them which has been a problem as well um, yeah Absolutely. Uh, so that kind of relatedly, what's been your sense? I mean, you're obviously you're a mental health professional. So what's been your your sense of the impact on kids' mental health from from lockdowns and mass mandates and all the COVID policies? Well, I have to say I'm not a you know, my my speciality was never children. So I know I've never been someone who specialises in child mental health, just adults. But um, but yeah, I have colleagues who work in that in that area, and they tell me that there's been a marked increase in a whole range of uh, mental health problems with this age group, like self-harm. I've got lots of, of, lots of quantitative evidence to say that that's gone significantly higher during this coronavirus uh, era. Uh, eating disorders, you know, disruptive behaviour, uh, low mood, anxiety. Um, and also one of, the, one of the things that kind of overlaps with mental health, but also just a, just a general negative for kids, is that we seem to have lost, uh, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, Ian, but with an amazing number of kids have slipped through the educational net now. Uh, these, are, these are kids who, you know, that perhaps uh, come from um, more deprived backgrounds, who've always maybe had presented challenges for schools to some extent, but during this period, the last two years, they've just got lost. You know, they're not at school anymore and nobody knows where they are, which is quite, yeah. quite frightening, really. Um, but, yeah, back to mental health. Yeah, it's, it, it, there's lots of uh, empirical evidence about the mental health consequences of this and anecdotal as well. Um, because, I, you know, deliberate self-harm has definitely gone through the, through the roof and uh, children have borne the brunt of the restrictions in many ways. Um, yeah. Which is absolutely ludicrous, um, grossly unfair, not least because of their, uh, their their fact that they're not going to really be affected by this virus. Right. Small risk of, of suffering as a result of COVID. Yeah, it's, that's going to be another area that people focus on down the road is all the damage that's been done for uh, to kids and, and school-age kids. It's, it's crazy. But mm. I, I wanted to ask you as well... Uh, what do you think has been behind the push? This is kind of a different subject, but behind the push for the, you know, like vaccine mandates. I know the NHS, that was a very contentious issue and vaccine passports as well. And uh, especially, you know, we've seen vaccinated people are contracting and spreading COVID at similar, if not higher rates as unvaccinated people. Yeah. So, you know, what, what's behind this? What's the reason for it? <laughs> Again, I wish, I wish I knew definitively the answer to that. <clears throat> I, I've kind of been on a journey with that one because as I mentioned earlier, Ian, I'm, I've never been a particularly uh, uh, you know, person who's suspicious of government motives. For it. <laughs> you know, I've been pretty naive when I think about it over the over the years, and not been that questioning about some government policies. Um, but with this, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm the furthest thing from a conspiracy theorist that you can find. But 
the fact is you've got to come up with an explanation for what at first sight appears to be two years of extreme masochism. You know, just just this policies that are just appear at first sight to be irrational and self-destructive. And you kind of got to answer, well, why? Why have we done that? No, not just UK and not just the US, but pretty much all the developed world seems to have gone down that line. And I've really struggled with that question over the last two years. I, in, the, in the early stages, I clung desperately to the uh, panic and incompetence explanation. You know, I, I'm, I, our politicians can be quite uh, <laughs> incompetent at times and they, they panic and they're easily influenced and, uh, you know, do what they think is going to be popular rather than what they think is going to be right. So I clung to that explanation. Oh, it's all down to panic and incompetence. But that quickly became uh, inadequate. It was clear that didn't really tell the whole tale. It's been a lot of that, but that, that was insufficient to explain what was going on. So then I moved towards um, what we might call opportunistic agendas. That a number of agendas have jumped on this for their own aims, and some of those aims are not always that uh, that worthy. So of course, talking about you know drug industry profits, you know um, maybe some left wing agendas around universal income, for instance. Um, you know, so agendas trying to milk this. For, for all that they can. But now I'm not even sure that's sufficient either. Um, and I could be wrong. I hope I am really, but I do think there is something about trying to get us all onto uh, a, a kind of COVID passport so that we can be you know, uh, under surveillance, uh, controlled better by some global uh, powers. And you know, I've read a lot recently about social credit systems, you know, and it's, I know they're already operative in China. And, and I've been trialled in, in some Western countries as well. You know, in, in the UK, I found out recently that one of the major uh, credit card companies had actually done a trial of a, a credit card that put some limits on what you could spend. So that if you if you, you know if you if you actually hit a certain limit of saying buying red you know, red meat or alcohol whatever mm, you were, right. that's it you know, they could just immediately um, uh, halt your card so you couldn't spend any more on that. Now, of course, yeah. that was voluntary in the UK when they did the trial, which was supposed to be for your green agenda and all that kind of thing. Um, but my worry is that the push is to get us all onto a system where they can switch those kinds of things on or off, you know, mm -hmm. so that, you know, they want us to not travel as much. They could, you know, limit how much fuel we can buy. If they want us to eat less red meat. They could certainly put a cap on that at the flick of a switch, literally sometimes. And, uh, and like I said, that might sound a little bit like down a rabbit hole, but I find it hard to come up with anything else at the moment because you've got to explain, as I said, this prolonged period of what appears at first sight to be just self-destructiveness. And you just say, why would we do that? Why would we all do that together? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So well, and, and with the NHS thing in particular, I, I was curious if you have a sense of, you know, people within the NHS, did they support the mandate? Because it seemed like they, it would cause it, you know, here we hear about the waiting list for, for back uh, care for other things and cancer treatments and things like that. And then you're going to lose tens of thousands of people. You know, were they supportive of the mandates, even though they were going to lose a lot of their colleagues? Or what was, what do you think of that policy? I think the majority, well, I, I think the policy, the, the policy is, 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 is abhorrent and, uh, and, and horrible and irrational, as well as being unethical. Of medical apartheid, but sadly, I think majority of people in the NHS supported it, um, and I th and I think two reasons for that. Ian. I think I think one is because, like everyone else, I think they're bought into the propaganda, which you know I can't, in a way, I can't blame anyone for buying into it because it's just been just so concentrated and continuous, incessant. So I think, like anyone else, a lot of them are bought into that. The other thing with our NHS, Ian, which you may not be aware of, is, is that it's always been very um, top-down driven, all protocol driven. 
it's uh, this is something that used to frustrate me endlessly when I worked in the service. Is that you know the, the, some powers that be come up with this is the way that we should be doing this. This is the protocol, and then all the clinicians then are supposed to follow it, and a lot of them do. You know, a lot of doctors, for instance, very bright individuals, of course, medical practitioners. Now they seem to have lost the power of critical thought. You know, they, they just they just follow protocols. They just look up and know well, what do we need to do now. Oh, if, if X applies, then you do Y. Okay, let's do that. Now they know there's no real kind of critical thought going on. There are exceptions, of course, but but I think a lot of uh, my NHS staff, NHS staff, next colleagues have been hugely disappointing in that regard. But I think mm. I think those are the two main reasons for it, that they're vulnerable to the brainwashing like everybody else. But also there's this culture of protocol following. You know, yeah. we do what we're told, um, which is hugely frustrating, as you can imagine. Yeah, it's, it's very similar answers to what I've, I've had in the US as well when I've asked people about this. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, that, yeah. Again, it just kind of seems like it's a consistent thing among certain maybe mm. professions for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, so my last, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think because one of the, one of, one of the other things I've been grappling with along with many others over the last few months is how can we actually get more people to show some dissent, to make the dissent visible? Um, was it the Canadian? Is it Julius Seychelles, the journalist? Have you come across his work, uh, Ian? He's a, a Canadian journalist, I think, and he's, 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 taught, he's taught very eloquently about this, and how we've got to make our dissent visible. We've got to challenge what he calls the illusion of consensus, this idea mm. that the large majority of people are on board with all these restrictions. And the only way to do that is for us to make our dissent visible in some way by expressing it, you know, either in writing, not anonymously, but actually coming out and saying, no, I'm not happy with this, I'm not sort of, uh, uh, I'm not comfortable with this. And, yeah. and the thing is, as he says, and it's right, and I agree totally with him, is that data alone is insufficient to shift the dial on that. But people aren't going to become more receptive to our arguments, our our arguments challenging the dominant narrative. They're not, no, data and science alone isn't going to achieve that. It's necessary, but but not sufficient. Because if it was sufficient, all this would have you know, dissipated back in summer 2020. Mm -hmm. We have enough data then, didn't we, to, to, to demonstrate <laughs> without doubt that this we're going down the wrong path. So it's, it's, it's more of, you've got to get people curious first. You've got to get people interested in alternative ideas. Uh, and that's a real challenge. You know, psychologically, that's a battle. And once you've done that, then they start to be um, interested in the data and they start to be interested in, in uh, accessing other bits of information they've probably ignored or distorted up to now. But maybe, yeah. that's, maybe that's an issue for another day. It's a big, that's a big <laughs> it is. It is a big question. Um, but it's kind of related to it's kind of my last question for you, which was, uh, you know, do you think that there is a, a chance that we can get a full return to normalcy, like where the world goes back to 2019? You know, is, it, is that something that's possible at this point? Or are people just mm -hmm. so have been so worn down by the restrictions that, you know, many people just will refuse to go back to normal? Yeah, I, I like to think we could get back to normal, um, but it's going to be a challenge um, for a lot of reasons. The main couple being, like we mentioned earlier, about the the infrastructure, legal infrastructure, and call it that, still being in place to be able to reinstate these um, restrictions at the whim of a, uh, a government minister. You know, I think that's that. You know, we've got to we've got to get rid of that. We've got to get people to acknowledge that this huge mistakes have have been made. Um, and this other area is, is, is really sad, isn't it? I'm, I'm sure I'm not, you, know, you may have experienced this here, and I don't know, I know I have, is that over the last two years, it's fractured a lot of relationships. It's been very polarizing. Yeah, not, least, yeah. not least the mask issue. That's the most polarizing issue of a lot, really, the mask. Um, you know, I've lost friends and uh, many colleagues are more distant now, um, and even if we're not actively kind of in dispute 
there is a kind of greater distance grown between us and we speak each other less and uh, you know, there's a bit of an elephant in the room kind of thing. Uh, and that's going to take a long time to heal. Um, and I like to think it can be healed ultimately, but it's going to take a long time. I've got to keep, even though I'm still angry, <laughs> like a lot of people are, I think, I'm angry at what the government and the scientists have done to us in their, their monofocus on just one issue. But I'm also, in truth, I'm angry with a lot of people as well who've gone along with it or remain quiet. And I know my rational bit of my head knows that being angry isn't going to help resolve these things. We need to be open now and get everybody back in the fold and try and put old fractures behind us. Uh, but that's very difficult to do, I think, after two years of this. Um, but in answer to your question, I, I hope so. I hope we can get back to normal. But we've still got some major hurdles to negotiate yet. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that almost entirely. It is, uh, it seems possible, but it still seems a long ways off. <laughs> you know, the, the world we've, we've been through a lot of trauma as a, as a world for, for many years, but it, it does feel like it, this has been such a, I also think the social media impact has made it so that it's spread so widely and, and so easily that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's going to take some time for people to kind of recover because they've been so conditioned to seeing the same messages over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Spot on. Well, well, thank you so much, Gary, for joining the show. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate all your your insights and and uh, information. Uh, where can we find your your work going forward? Um, my I do my blogs coronababble.com. Um, it's always worth a, a read. Um, got lots of stuff on there about masks. A lot of stuff on there about nudges. Um, and uh, shortly, I'll be putting all the links to the various articles and, and interviews that I've done with the media as well. So everything everything could be found there. Corona Barrier. Uh, sorry, I think about coronababble.com. Let's get that right. Coronababble.com. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, I hope so, Ian. Thank you. Get back to your, your holiday now and enjoy it.